0: are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil! Evil!
1: It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. It's the Popcorn
2: Digest. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time great tit, Andrew Raphael. Hanging out, hanging out, hanging out, hanging out with my ballsack. <laughs> <laughs> and today we're watching not one, but two bird-based horrors. One is a thriller by the master of suspense, littered with scenes so iconic they've come to define the genre. And the other is The Birds. That's <laughs> right, we're watching Hitchcock's classic P.E.K.K.A., and Birdemic Shock and Terror. But do either of these films soar? Find out after the trailer. <laughs> How do you do? My name is Alfred Hitchcock. And I would like to tell you about our good friends, the birds. Ah! That's the damnest thing I ever saw. Birds just don't go around attacking people without
1: no reason. Yes, they attack the children, attack them. What's the matter with it. all the birds? Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. Those gulls attack. Impossible. They came in right down the chimney. Why are they doing things? <laughs>
2: it's the end of the world
1: are the birds gonna eat us mommy
2: get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth that would hardly be possible mitch don't the five continents of the world contain more than a hundred billion birds oh at once the birds are
1: everywhere how don't you all go home lock your doors and windows did you get the windows in the attic? when do you think they'll come what what happens they
2: Today we're doing things a little differently here at Popcorn Digest as we're taking a look at two full-on peckers. We wanted to review Hitchcock's thriller The Birds but felt we couldn't really talk about that film without discussing the masterpiece it inspired. After all, The Birds ran so that birdemic shock and terror could fly before quickly dive-bombing into the nearest petrol station in a ball of flames. (laughs) (laughs) And then I wrote whether or not I keep this one in. Hitchcock must be spinning in his elephant-sized grave. (laughs) 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 Oh, dear. Yeah, keep that. Yeah, I felt bad when I wrote it as well. Okay, so yes, I think I've... Um, let's move on to the film. So we're doing both The Birds and Birdemic, and the way it's going to work here is we're going to speak about the birds first, and then we're going to move on to Birdemic. We don't quite know how this is going to flow, but hopefully it'll um, it'll all go very pleasantly as a listen. Yeah, it'll be structured better than Birdemic anyway. (laughs) Yeah okay so let's begin with the birds by the master of suspense andy had you seen the birds before uh, the episode of popcorn digest
0: no not not in full but i've been aware of the birds from a very young age and um when i was younger i used to go to um florida a lot and i used to go to universal studios and in the the very early incarnation of that park they actually where the shrek ride is now uh, unfortunately um there was a an alfred hitchcock based attraction called yeah. alfred hitchcock the art of filmmaking or something like that it had different sections in it so the first section i think was a an introduction to hitchcock and it had a bit of Dial M for Murder in 3D, so you wore 3D glasses to watch it in 3D.
2: That was one of my first Hitchcock films, Dial M for Murder. And
0: then they had a, a second theatre which you went in, which was the Psycho theatre, where they reenacted how they did the shower room scene with all the uh, breakaway set, and they had a, like a replica of Bates Motel inside and the and everything. And and then the last part was a almost like an interactive museum where they had like set pieces like they had part of the carousel from strangers on a train they had the um, the statue of liberty torch from saboteur and lots of other things and within and they had the model from rear window for the Mm -hmm. um the back of the street so i was introduced to hitchcock and his movies probably from sort of the age of like seven because of this attraction and it's it's long gone like shrek replaced it years and years ago Uh, that's (laughs) That's that's... almost like a metaphor for where cinema's gone. really is. And yeah, so I've always been aware of the birds, but just never got around to uh, watching it. I mean, I only really started watching Hitchcock seriously, maybe like... Sort of five six years ago yeah i don't know why i just never got around to it and i still haven't got through all of them but yeah I'm, I'm sort of working my way through yeah and yeah so i haven't seen this film fully but i've been aware of certain set pieces and like the overhead shot with the the petrol station on fire and the birds flying over that's always stuck in my mind as my, sort yeah. of my central image for the birds
2: that is one of the best shots in the film as well yeah i, I yeah. will say as well from my point of view approaching this film i had not seen it before this episode and i'm quite a fan of alfred hitchcock as well i started watching his films when i was a teenager when i just started film school i remember that remember that dvd box set that they released with the majority of his films where well, i have it on yeah, blu-ray yeah. now yeah they were selling that at hmv for 20 quid so i bought that yeah and over a weekend <laughs> i got through a load of his films and i've been kind of just watching them on repeat since however the birds is just one of those films that it got through the cracks i never really got round to watching it I always kind of gravitated towards Psycho as being the film from that era of Alfred Hitchcock that I would go back to. And watching it now, I feel like perhaps I've seen it a little bit too late. And I had a very strange experience with this film because for a good portion of it, I did not get what the fuss was about. And I'll get into why later on in the episode. But it did take a while for it to work its magic on me to the point that I was really getting ready to be Quite negative about the film going into this podcast, but I'll save a little bit back for what we're going to talk about. But yeah, The Birds has also been a later experience for me. I tried to watch it once before, but this is the first time that I've seen it all the way through. But I've always been aware of the legacy of The Birds, obviously. Yeah. But to say that I've actually seen Birdemic more times and long before I've seen The Birds is. Well, (laughs) that's one way that you can shit on the Master of Suspense's legacy as well. Yeah, I think we saw Birdemic
0: not that long after it had come out, to be honest. I think during that initial media buzz, I do remember around about sort of late 2010, 2011, I was watching it. I mean, I don't think I've seen
2: it since it doesn't really repair repeated viewing um no really <laughs> well <laughs> once is enough i have seen birdemic <laughs> too many times because yeah i i saw it very early when it was first released and then you go through this period of kind of just showing it to everybody you know that will enjoy that kind of film that kind of experience yeah. in the same way so you just end up watching it over and over again and I kind of I kind of burnt it out for me, so it's, it's been good to go back to it now and uh, well, I'll say good and see it in the context of what James Gwen was aping as well, now that I have the full frame of reference for that.:
0: Yeah, and it is strange with Hitchcock, uh, especially with that box set, which I think has about 16 of his films in. Mm-hmm. I always tended to gravitate towards the the black and white films, actually yeah yeah, I generally found them to work better for me. Yeah. Then the uh, some of the Technicolor. I mean, obviously things like rear window work. But yeah, I generally just found um, some of my favorite Hitchcock films are the are the black and white ones. Uh,
2: yeah. Like Strangers
0: on a Train
2: and Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah. And and ones around that time. Strangers on a Train was one of the first Hitchcock's that I saw. I think Dial M for Murder was the first one that I did watch. But then I uh, saw Strangers on a Train, and that's left a very lasting impact on me as a film as well. Always very much enjoyed that one.
0: a few exceptions, I tend to favour the more black and white ones over the colours.
2: Yeah. That sounds really wrong.
0: (laughs) Anyway, and I I hadn't really visited the latter part of his career, like, you know, post-Psycho. Yeah. I'm only just starting to sort of visit that. Now I'm sort of going through sort of like Topaz and Torn Curtain Mm -hmm. and Frenzy. And because the birds is post-Psycho, it kind of is lumped in with, with all that. So I just haven't, really got around to experiencing it until now and i think it was the other like a month or two ago i was watching the hitchcock true foe documentary yeah and when they started talking about the birds i just thought oh that would be a good one to do and then you had the idea of pairing it with birdemic <laughs> <laughs> so i was wanting to do this sort of arty um piece that episode <laughs> on on the birds
2: and then i wanted to keep us grounded
0: yeah grounded My flight of fancy. Exactly, But yeah, it's funny because you started watching the film before I did and you texted me about it saying that you didn't think it was that great. No. And I watched it last night in the knowledge that you didn't like it I didn't I didn't actually know that you hadn't seen the whole thing yeah so I was watching it in the knowledge that you hated the whole thing yeah because you really didn't talk very positively about it at all in your text message so I kind of watched it with that and I'm not sure that it's because of that I had a slightly better experience yeah with it um than just watching it completely cold without any kind of Mm -hmm. prior opinion but yeah I do completely understand where you're coming from because it is I would say is a uh, comes under the category of flawed masterwork It is not a perfect film.
2: Yeah. I mean, I did text you far too prematurely when when I was watching that film because I'd only seen about an hour and 15 minutes of it. So... I started watching it late at night and I was finding it really quite hard to get through because I have a four-month-old as well that I have to attend to as well in the middle of the night. So sleep is something that I'm (laughs) like only getting in fits and starts. So I was finding it quite hard to get through that first chunk of the film and I wasn't feeling any sense of tension or growing sense of panic or anything like that. And I kind of gave up on it at the point in which the... Kids are running down the street with the birds chasing them. And I thought, and I genuinely thought at that point, oh, it's near the end. And when I paused it, I saw, oh, shit, no, there's 50 minutes to go. So (laughs) I I left that there and I thought, I'll come back to it later and then a texture. And I really was in a negative place at that point. But then having seen the rest of it, I gave it another go and I watched it from scratch again. And I really went straight through it. And watching it all in one go the second time around as well. It worked so much better for me, but mainly because of what it does in that second half. Yeah, yeah. Like, I do feel like the first half is a slog that you have to get through to where Hitchcock excels in the second half. I I think as well, just before we do get into really the nitty gritty as to what really uh, worked and didn't work for us, I think it's important that we do lay some context in regards to the birds as well, like when this film was made. Now, Andy, I, I haven't actually done any of the uh, <laughs> any background stuff, but you've watched a couple of documentaries about the birds. Yeah. So, would yeah. you be able to like set the scene for ourselves as to when this film was made?
0: Yeah. So this is the first film that Hitchcock made following his uh, phenomenal success with Psycho. It's probably the longest gap after uh, a film in his whole filmography uh, yeah. up until that point. Anyway because it comes out uh, almost a, a full three years after Psycho. So I'm not sure whether it was a, a problem with getting stories, because I know that was always a, a problem with Hitchcock, is finding uh, new and interesting stories. And I imagine at this point in his career, because he'd done so many films, that it would have gotten harder and harder to find a unique story. Mm-hmm. But the the genesis for The Birds comes from a short story by... Daphne du Maurier, who had yeah. written Rebecca. Of course, yeah. It was originally optioned for to be a, an episode of his um, television show, um, mm-hmm. which Hitchcock Presents. Through perusing story concepts for the TV show, he'd come across this and actually thought it may make a decent stepping-off point for a, a feature rather than a, a TV episode. Uh, he contacted screenwriter Evan Hunter with the idea of using the central conceit of birds attacking a small town but pretty much throwing everything else out because i think the short story was more of a a mood piece and was set in a a cornish town Mm -hmm. in the uk and uh yeah he wanted to obviously shift the action to america understandably and i think they chose Bodega Bay specifically because of the weather which had much more in common with a British climate if you like the landscape feels very mm. you know if if yeah. you weren't told you would have thought you would have been in England or something like that and um, yeah because it had very unpredictable weather a lot of rain and and wind and and it definitely shaped the landscape into something that was definitely more recognizable it, you know if someone had said that was Cornwall
2: the only thing that gives it away is like the structures of the houses
0: yeah definitely
2: yeah you could easily put a little corn town there yeah or well, it could be somewhere in in scotland or something like that yeah exactly yeah
0: absolutely so yeah that was the 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 central idea and going into actually maybe this is like almost like the start of maybe the the issues that you have with the film evan hunter had the idea of doing it almost like a mashup. Because the original piece was a mood piece, and they were trying to work out how to get these characters involved in, into this situation, he purposely designed the front end of the film to be a, a 1940s style screwball comedy yeah. with a meat cute yeah. involved, and that that will be what spurred these characters into action and and get them to that location. And the idea is that in the 1940s screwball comedies, it was very often the idea that you would have the the high society lady Mm -hmm. and then the more stoic man who would be a lawyer, which is why they are those archetype characters. Yeah, And then dump them in that situation and then let it slowly evolve. This is kind of unusual because obviously most directors embarking on a story... Yeah. If they thought that the story would require certain technical obstacles to overcome, they would maybe assess this before embarking on the project. But Hitchcock being Hitchcock with his general um, attitude towards things would be, I'm not going to... Test any technologies before doing this film. We've got a sort of "let's get on with it" attitude. So we're going to make it work, whatever. Like learn it on the fly. Yeah, which is a very kind of old school attitude. Yeah, it is something you wouldn't really get away with now because obviously at this particular time in his history, he had an incredible amount of power within the Universal Mm -hmm. City lot. I think he was the uh, the fifth largest shareholder, largest uh, man in the world at that time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So. as usual with the Hitchcock film, the film was pre-planned to mm-hmm. to the nth degree with a you know a hell of a lot of storyboarding, which is commonplace now, but was not was not commonplace at all. Yeah, at the time, he almost was like invented the concept of pre-visualization. The production of the film is actually pretty um, effects intensive, like more. And actually, going through the the documentary that's on the on the DVD because I haven't got the Blu-ray, but I think it's on the Blu-ray anyway. But the the all about the birds documentary there's things in that i just did not know were not real because obviously hitchcock has a penchant for not filming on location He was famously hated mm-hmm. filming anything on location due, due to the lack of control only a very small part of this film was actually made in bodega bay a lot of the film was achieved on the back lot and in sound stages and a lot of the blanks were filled in by using matte paintings yeah and a, a hell of a lot of matte paintings some that I did not know were matte paintings. Uh, it's our no.
2: I, I will say that I did feel like there's some obvious soundstage stuff, as there always is in yeah. Alfred Hitchcock films. But I did think that this film did shoot primarily on location, especially for the exteriors. Yeah. So that's quite a revelation for myself. Yeah. As well.
0: So the majority of the town scenes are done on the back lot. Even some of the scenes on the open water were were enhanced with matte shots. Yeah. And, and that overhead shot that we were talking about before was mainly achieved using a matte painting. Mm-hmm. For example, with that shot, they set the camera up on the hill, which now famously um, is the location for the Universal Studios Hollywood theme park. Yeah. And uh, they had the camera pointing down onto the Batlock car park. The scene was set up there and they had the fire and people running around and they basically marked it off on a, a pane of glass. So they created an in-camera matte. Yeah. And then Albert Whitlock, who was the matte artist on the film, all the buildings and the surrounding countryside is all a matte painting. Oh, wow. And then the, um, the birds were added on afterwards. That's quite marvellous. And it's all in camera, so it's like an in-camera yeah. negative, so it wouldn't have been developed until the last minute. So you've got all those kind of techniques. But the main thing with the film, which I think maybe why it stands the test of time, more so than other films that are um, optically composited, they used a special technique to do all of the um, optical work. So instead of using a a blue screen Mm -hmm. and doing mats that way, they used a special sodium process, which had been uh, patented by Disney. Of course. And was invented by uh, Bub Iwerks, who's a, uh, I would say, a figure who's just not talked about enough. Yeah. He was a very early colleague of Walt Disney. He was the the first Mm -hmm. man to animate Mickey Mouse. He animated all those very early Mickey Mouse shorts, like Steamboat Willie and Playing Crazy, yeah. and everything. And then later on, he became head of special processes at Disney Productions and invented things like the multiplane camera, uh, xeroxing, which is obviously he basically invented photocopying. Wow! And he invented the sodium process, which basically meant instead of having a blue screen, they had this yellow screen, and it was the it was the difference between white light and yellow light. But there was nothing backlit, so you wouldn't get that kind of like blue halo that you would get yes, around. Yeah. So it meant that there were pretty much no matte lines. Oh, very nice. Which, you know, used to get that black line. So they they actually had Disney do this work for them because obviously it was Disney's process and they weren't going to share it with anyone else. So they actually, Disney was sort of seconded to do these optical effects using this sodium process. That's the reason why, even after all this time, the effects look pretty good. Yeah. There's a few effects where you can kind of tell that, yeah, they've processed this optically, but there's quite a lot of shots in the film mm. that I had no idea that they'd actually put the birds in afterwards. Yeah. Especially that, that scene with the um, the sparrows inside the house, when they come inside the house. That That incredibly is
2: incredibly effective. That's yeah. one of my favourite scenes in the entire film, yeah. to be honest. That's
0: all optical. They were reacting against nothing.
2: See... I was trying to figure that out while I was watching it because I could see that there was something optical going on, but it still felt like there was something physically there. It all came together so well for that scene. that To actually learn that the whole lot of it was optical is quite astounding now because some of it is just seamless.
0: I think also as well, this is one of the rare films, and I was reading about this in the... uh the Hitchcock true foe book just before. This is one of the very rare films where he kind of improvised on set as well yeah. uh, with a few sequences because he um, he kind of felt that the scenario wasn't holding up so he did make a few changes on the fly. Mm-hmm. There's two major aspects to this film, I think, that are in addition to the effects. Mm-hmm. One is the music or lack of music. I've
2: written in my notes as well the distinct lack of music. Yeah, It does give it this stark terror feeling to it as well this is a very early
0: example of electronic sound manipulation remy gasman and they had this um, sound manipulator synthesizer MacGuffin Malarkey called the Tritonium yeah. and it allowed them to uh, manipulate audio sounds although he's not credited as composer Bernard Herrmann was involved in orchestrating all these sounds mm-hmm. so in all intents and purposes it still is a, a Bernard Herrmann score but it's a score using sound effects rather than that
2: was what I was going to mention is that although it doesn't have a score itself it does feel like the Bernard themselves provide this kind of atonal, terrifying soundtrack this and en- that enhances the picture yeah and it's clear that this was obviously the case but that the conscious decision was made for the birds themselves to be the soundtrack to the picture so having bernard herman in there as well as somebody with a musical background to kind of know when these birds need to hit these typical beats as well yeah, and when yeah. to hit them the film does have that sense of flow even though it doesn't have anything traditionally musical going on in that background.
0: Mm. And there's a little bit of source music as well, like you have the kids singing during the um, the scene where she's sitting on the bench and the uh, mm-hmm. crows
2: are gathering behind her on the jungle gym. I just got to ask as well, during that scene, have you written down the big train gag? Because I cannot watch <laughs> that scene without thinking of the sketch from Big Train with all of the uh, working man builders turning <laughs> up. It's a brilliant sketch. It can be watched on YouTube, but it's essentially that scene played out, but instead of birds turning up on the jungle gym, it's just these working class builders <laughs> that are just going, Hello, all right, mate, hello, 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 all right, mate, hello. And every time you look back there's more of them just hanging off the jungle gym and everything. Hello, all right, mate, hello, all right. I'd actually forgotten about that sketch. And uh, there's an incredible use of
0: silence in this film, especially in the second half of the film, yeah. in the last half an hour. And I'd say that's probably where the film is at its most effective in that last half an hour. Yeah, I mean, if you're into sound in movies, it's one of the ones to watch, I would say, yeah, <laughs> that last half an hour of the birds. But the the other main thing to talk about, I think, with this film, I'd say maybe the film's Achilles heel, but is the cast, because post-Psycho, The Birds is the first film where you have a sense that the wheels are slowly starting to fall off the cart for the Hitchcock train, because yeah. from this point onwards, he starts losing people. Mm-hmm. And later on, that went for his, obviously, his composer, Bernard Herman, his DOP, his costume designer.
2: Yeah. The list goes on. And then you have, really, ending with Frenzy, which is practically a film made with an entirely different cast and crew. Yeah. He couldn't even get the people that he wanted for that film, for the yeah. roles that he wanted to populate them with in that film.
0: At this point, the people that he was losing... From the start, was his cast members, um, his, yeah. because at this point. A lot of the people that he would used in the past were either getting too old. I know that mm-hmm. Hitchcock attributed the failure of Vertigo to the age of James Stewart. Yeah. And Cary Grant famously retired very early on in his career, not that long after North by Northwest. I was gonna
2: say, Rod Taylor has a very Cary Grantness term as well, that I feel like that's the role that he occupies. Do, do you know what I think about Rod Taylor? Go on. That Rod Taylor looks like Cary Grant had sex with Robin Williams. <laughs> I can see it. Yeah, I can. And also, that is an image that will never leave my brain. Thank you very much, Andy. I was thinking it all the way through the films. I wouldn't want to traverse through your brain. Yeah, he looks like Robin Williams, like
0: channeling Cary Grimm. Just slightly less hairier. Yeah. But yeah, he was losing a lot of these people. And also, in his leading ladies, he had very particular ideas about what a, a leading lady and a leading man should be. And he was, and the people. That he used time and time again, like Cary Grant, James yeah. Stewart, and everybody. they were they are either retired or were too old. And people like Grace Kelly, who was his ideal leading lady, had yep. by this point gone off to marry the um, Prince of Monaco and become Monaco royalty. And I know that he did try and get her back for the following film, Marnie. But there was, I know there was a whole political ruckus with um, Charles de Gaulle and the Prince of Monaco. It basically ended up that she couldn't. Revisit her film career. Yeah, all these people, he just wasn't Incredibly able to use special. About so he that. ended up having to resort to using people like Rod Taylor, who he felt were competent but did not have
2: the the same charisma that those earlier actors did i do like rod taylor as well like but primarily from the time machine yeah but i wouldn't say that he's the greatest of that period which alfred hitchcock was used to working with he was used to working with the best of the best and i i do think in this film rod taylor is who you would describe as an actor that is as you mentioned competent he's fine but there's nothing really. But I'd say this
0: search for the ideal leading lady brings us on to Tippi Hedren. Yeah, who is the uh, lead of this film? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a strange case. I would say this is almost like uh, life imitating art. I would say this is like Vertigo come real. Yeah, I mean, there's been an awful lot written about this uh, Alfred Hitchcock Tippi Hedren relationship. Uh, I mean, there's a whole film, uh, The Girl, that was made about it. Yeah, yeah, this is Hitchcock's attempt at. Taking somebody and molding them into his ideal leading lady, yeah, and it lasted all of two films. I mean, this film and uh, Marnie, which I think, I mean, is another story entirely. And there's much that's been written in about its aftermath, and I'm never quite sure what is true and what isn't
2: with that. Tippi Hedren has been quite vocal as to what happened on set, especially when it comes to the birds and how Hitchcock tortured her once she rebuffed his sexual advances. And I know there's been people that have come forward to say that um, she's a liar, but I do remember hearing, reading that Rod Taylor was somebody that they've jumped to her defense as somebody that actually saw it on set as well mm. and, and witnessed that. And I do feel like at this point in Hitchcock's career, especially, as you mentioned, the wheels are coming off the car. I do feel like this is where somebody that's used to getting everything that he's ever wanted mm. suddenly finds that he can't. I put so much more stock into tippy hedron's mm. version of events than i do otherwise essentially i do think there's something about him that is gross as a person kind of thing yeah from this point onwards that is hard to deny yeah but i think the
0: thing that makes it more complicated unlike a lot of these um more modern sort of me too situations is that she almost has like a love hate relationship with hitchcock yeah even after all that happened and and the fact that he basically sabotaged her career after Marnie. Yeah. She still has a certain degree of admiration for him. And respect for him. And, yeah, and it's one of the things where we'll, we'll, you know, you'll never get down to the bottom of it. No, I don't think so. It's definitely one of those things where it's definitely a uh, Hitchcock losing perspective, trying to hold on to things. And almost like because she ended up being his kind of plaything, his thing
2: to mould. Yeah. It was almost like almost a sense of ownership. That sense of control. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's plenty been written about it. There's plenty that you can read and, and even watch yeah. about the subject as well. But for our, I would say our middle-aged listeners, she is the mum
0: of Melanie Griffith. Of course. And for our younger listeners, she's the grandma of Dakota Johnson.
2: There we go. So uh, a long dynasty there. <laughs> Absolutely I do remember reading that uh, Melanie Griffiths has a story about Alfred Hitchcock saying that He presented her with a little Model of a coffin With <laughs> tippy Hedren inside it As a present yeah. To give to Melanie Griffiths at the time she was seven years old <laughs> That's pretty terrifying Yeah <laughs> Yeah. And also, this is pre-RAW, which is a film that we should definitely do on this podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Tentatively casting that aside, because it is like a big elephant in the room, and it kind of does cast a bit of a shadow across all of Hitchcock's work, I would say. Yeah.
2: If you do get into it, the whole podcast episode would be about that particular subject, and there's certainly a lot that you could talk about, so many different moral things that you could bring up yeah, as well definitely. about the subject but I think there's other people out there that could do that particular thing better than us yeah the point of it all really
0: is the fact that I don't think you can mold somebody to be something no. that just comes natural to another person I think trying to get somewhere in between Ingrid Bergman who we never forgave for leaving him for Rosalini mm. and uh, Grace Kelly Like he was definitely trying to get somebody who was somewhere in between. I I don't think you can mold somebody into that.
2: Yeah, I think Grace Kelly he described as being like his shining star. Yeah. And he really liked her because she could tell a good, dirty joke and swore like a trooper.
0: And I think with Grace Kelly, it just shows on screen that it's just something that comes natural to her. Yeah. She's not doing anything particular. That's just her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same goes with Kerry Grant. And that's why, like, you know, if you watch, say, something like to catch a thief their chemistry is just like popping off the screen. Oh yeah, it's fire. And I think in a way with the birds, there's almost like an attempt to revisit that feeling because mm-hmm. I watched To Catch a Thief not that long ago and um, the early part of this film very much reminded me of the dynamic in To Catch a Thief, Yeah, but uh, them failing at doing that. And I think this is where I feel like maybe the film's Achilles heel is in its central casting because I think to set up this meat cute situation, it may have
2: worked with carrie grant and grace kelly or? and grace kelly yeah but i don't think it works with these actors no because there are no fireworks between them no i think for one reason or another and i think from what you've just said as well to take an actress and try and make them fit another mold rather than allowing them to be themselves and accentuating what they bring to a film and taking it that way i think that already is a wrong direction to head in but you certainly, for one reason or another, don't have any fireworks between these characters. There's no friction or sexual tension or anything like that between these characters. And I think this is why I keep on referring to it as the breakfast at Tiffany's part of the film. But like you say, it's that screwball comedy aspect. And I think with Tippi Hedren's character, Melanie Daniels, she's often described as being this free spirit, this wild individual. And what she does at the beginning of the film, taking these lovebirds to... I forgot his name. Is it Mitch? Mitch Mitch uh, Mitch Brenner? Yeah, yeah. Mitch Brenner. uh, Taking them across 60 miles of Californian land to drop them off at his doorstep. like That's the wildest thing that she's done, but never again do we ever feel like there's anything kooky or crazy about her as a character. She's a lot more stoic and a lot more rigid than we really expect of these type of films. And I think because of that, that whole aspect of the story
0: comes off as a little bit kind of borderline obsessive rather than free-spirited it kind of comes off the wrong way
2: i wrote down that it comes across as pre-bunny boiler oh totally this is definitely something that a character from (laughs) fatal attraction would do most certainly
0: yeah it just seems like yeah when we were watching the film like my wife was just going she's going above and beyond what (laughs) any normal person would do and i think it's because of that kind of she has a kind of um prickliness that you don't get with say someone like Grace Kelly that I think yeah it sort of puts that whole part of the story slightly off kilter and I think yeah and I, instead of trying to mold her into that they should have gone with what worked for her and and made and yeah. built the story around her if you wanted to, her mm-hmm. to be in the film Because, yeah, making her do that kind of stuff. And, again, making Rod Taylor do that kind of stuff, um, it just doesn't really work. No. Yeah, I would say that part of the film feels quite long-winded as well Mm -hmm. because of it. Because you're not on board with it. It just feels like, oh, come on, it's got to the birds. I mean, it's probably a full half an hour until anything bird-related happens
2: at all. And that's the thing with the film as well that Alfred Hitchcock said about the film was that, Everybody know going into it, going to see it, would know that the birds would be an element of the film. And so the tension comes from, when do they start? When do they start to attack? But that whole part goes on for so long that by the time that they do, you're looking forward to them attacking. Yeah. So that something happens. That's the issue for me, is I'm not dreading the fact that these birds are going to start attacking at some point. I'm genuinely looking forward to it just so that it kicks this film off into a, like another level. It takes it somewhere else because what it does in that first 45 minutes doesn't work for me.
0: And also I think because the, the titles build up to it. like They kind of get you prepared yeah. for it and then there's nothing... Like, there's not
2: even... No, an, no, it just p- pulls you straight back again. I mean, you get slight hints, but I don't think it's enough to uh, build up that no. anticipation. No, I mean, at one part at the beginning is, where, like you say, about half an hour in, she gets attacked by a seagull. That happened to my dad on a run in Wales. <laughs> that's not that's not incredibly unusual. Yeah, and, and, and if you go to uh, St. Ives in any day, like, those
0: seagulls yeah. are vicious. I I had a seagull once that, when I was there, it nicked my whole pasty, so... uh <laughs>
1: I had this huge pasty, just an entire like, Greg sausage yeah, roll had, going down like the gullet. A, I
0: had like a steak and stilton pasty, and I had a <laughs> and the seagull swooped down, whacked me in the face, and stole the whole bloody thing. I mean, and this thing's heavy, like
2: it's a heavy yeah. pasty. I ended up with like a little corner. That's all I had left. That made me laugh about the beginning of the film because everybody's like, oh, the birds don't normally attack like this. And I was like, have you ever been to fucking Blackpool? Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's all that they do. They're, they're, they're horrible. Yeah. I remember when we went to Wales as, as a kid, my dad um, used to go running every single morning while we were staying there. And there used to be one single seagull that used to just sit on one of the nearby houses and the moment he would start running it would just start dive bombing him for the entire <laughs> run he'd be out for half an hour and he said and did it every single morning you got all these people that live in this uh, fishing village saying like the birds don't normally act this way yeah yeah do fucking do the birds so i have some, some minor issues with this
0: setup and also i feel like they're hinting it with the relationship of the uh, the brenners I feel like they're hinting at something quite interesting that they never really get a handle on as well. This whole mother-son relationship Mm -hmm. between um, Rod Taylor and, and Jessica Tandy, who I actually wrote down... Looks far too young young to be his mum, but when I looked at the ages, she's a full twenty one years older than him. Really? Yeah. Like she's born in She looks she looks really good. She was born in nineteen oh nine and he's born in nineteen thirty, so she's legitimately old enough to be his mum,
2: but she did not look that she was too young. Yeah. And I said because she looks too young, it almost their relationship almost comes off as incestuous. Yeah. I think it's because Rod Taylor looks older than he is. (laughs) She looks younger than she is. Oh wow, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: she was looking good. <laughs> yes, she was. I thought they'd just grayed her hair up or something like to make a look older. <laughs> the whole relationship between um, Annie. Yeah, Annie Hayworth. Annie Hayworth, yeah. I found that kind of odd and, but, and quite intriguing, but I don't think they really delved enough into it. Apparently that Annie Hayworth character is a remnant of what the original lead character was supposed to be like. Yeah. I think the original draft, they had the the leading lady as a school teacher who had moved into the town to be close to someone that she loved but had been rebuffed. Yeah. Which I don't know why they didn't use that. Seems like a much more natural inlet. I yeah. don't know why they abandoned that. But that's what and they basically made that character as a uh, a secondary character who would be like mm-hmm. the uh, the sacrificial lamb
2: of the film. Yeah I found her death as well to be quite anti climax. Yeah. Because yeah. I know it's off screen anyway and there's it's you there's only so much that you can show. But after setting up that character so hard in that first couple of acts, it then kind of goes nowhere and just yeah. fizzles out more than yeah. anything. Yeah, I, and I thought felt that the actress that. was great, although she sounds like she's about twenty years older than she looks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I couldn't
2: quite work her out.
0: To be honest, it was a bit. Yeah odd i mean there's definitely something off kilter about this the whole situation mm. to be honest
2: i felt like she was there as well to be this um, part of the love triangle that it does set up in that but because i don't think it really fully commits to it either it keeps on hinting at there being a love triangle there, but then pulling away from it, and because of that lack of commitment as well. Like I say, I feel like that first hour of the film it's lacking real drive.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, it's just kind of like meandering as it goes, and because there's no pop or fizzle between the characters as well, you just there's a sense of waiting but without any tension as well. Yeah. That was why I had such a negative experience that first time around as well. Mm. It didn't help that my viewing experience was interrupted a couple of times and I kept going back to it as well because it couldn't really build anything during that kind of watch. But... Yeah, I just felt it was lacking any fizz. Yeah, and I do feel like the dialogue is a bit stilted at times, especially in the first hour. And I read from Hitchcock that one of the things that he wanted to do initially with the film as well, with regards to the birds, and I don't know if this is something that is in reference to uh, Daphne de Maurier's original short story is that he wanted the birds to represent a punishment for some secret that this town has held for so many years you know that and now the the birds are coming to punish them it's like a thematic representation of their guilt and when i read that i was like oh I know it's a little bit, probably a little bit more cliche and probably what he was going for with this film is that it's the fact that the birds don't represent anything at all that makes him terrifying because they can, you know, it can happen to anybody. But also, I don't feel like it comes together in, in a more kind of cohesive role. It makes me think that the first hour of the film was kind of useless and it doesn't really justify why it went on for so long without anything actually happening because the birds don't actually represent anything like that. Yeah. Like, there's no mystery that's slowly unravelling outside of the birds themselves, or anything, any story-driven purpose to the narrative. I just don't know where it's going for that first hour.
0: Yeah, and when I was watching that part of the film, I thought, oh, is this setting up Certain members of the town that are going to be featured later, and it it doesn't really do that either. I think there's something interesting in there, but it's it's just it gets lost within. Yeah, I don't know. It's just not executed particularly well. To be honest, that the thing I found with this film is that although when it works, it really works. Yeah, when you get to the actual bird horror aspect to the film it works yeah it works hard terrifying but in any of the in between sections I feel like Hitchcock is actually having an off day mm. and um, one of these scenes which I really didn't think worked that well and um, reading the the Hitchcock Truffaut book uh, Francois Truffaut actually picks up in this as well he actually mentions this to uh Hitchcock because I think the great thing about the Hitchcock Truffaut book is that Truffaut is he's never hesitant in criticizing things that he doesn't think works in his work he's brutally honest honest with him which I think Hitchcock appreciated actually he had serious reservations about the restaurant scene about the cafe scene about saying that it went on far too long and I would Mm -hmm. uh, wholeheartedly agree with him and the strange thing is that the writer thought that was one of his best scenes and I think actually almost like epitomized why Evan Hunter is not Alfred Hitchcock. And I, I just think for a Hitchcock film, is it's far too verbose. And I think the staging yeah. of it is... There's a couple of little moments which work, but I think it's actually quite conventionally staged
2: Yeah, I would say what works about it is I like the sense that there's things going on in this environment, like people are talking over each other, people are interrupting each other but you, you do feel like there's far too many characters there they all like have far too much information for what they're providing as well you have this ornithological expert lady that kind of walks in and just dolls out all of this crazy information during the entire scene as well, and they kind of try and mask it by having her interrupted several times but you can kind of tell that that's what she's there for is to provide another kind of aspect another kind of point of view for the film as well and yeah i got the feeling when i was watching that i actually wrote that this feels like it's littered with cardboard cutout hitchcock characters not fully fleshed hitchcock characters like it feels like it's somebody that's seen a hitchcock film and then is is saying oh I, i'm going to do a scene like a hitchcock scene with these type of characters and then wrote that but never really fleshed it out truly yeah it
0: just felt really flat for me and it felt quite cliched as well especially with the uh, sort of irish sounding guy going it's the end of the world and it's like oh no
2: <laughs> that was the one that got me as well because i already feel like when this film works as well especially on the second half it already has this apocalyptic feel to it it doesn't need somebody to literally come out and say it's the end of the world yeah cause it already feels like really oppressively apocalyptic yeah. especially with the final shot
0: I mean I think even in the best Hitchcock films there's sometimes you have that scene which sticks out and and doesn't really work uh, Yeah. I mean like the like the ending of frenzy is uh, incredibly lackluster considering what's happening in yeah, the rest it of the is. film and the other one is the other famous one I think is the um, one of the last scenes in psycho where you have this random psychiatrist guy basically talks for a full five minutes (laughs) just spouting exposition that we pretty much already know, and uh, it's just not necessary at all. You could have cut that scene out, actually.
2: I love Psycho, but that is a film that goes on about five minutes too long. Yeah, and it's just like... It's, uh, It's just nearly there. And it's like,
0: oh, that's the scene for the dummies.
2: Yeah. The scene immediately
0: after is great, but that scene in the middle is just... Guff. it is It just doesn't need to be
2: there it feels like it's there to appease somebody is, as well yeah. like like it's there to, to like a studio's come in and said we really need to tie this up in a bow that's really makes the rest of the film easily digestible for the audience so they can walk away and say that they got everything yeah and it's entirely unnecessary
0: and i feel that cafe scene is a similar deal yeah where it's it's very exposition heavy and is it just slows the whole thing down and i don't think it really successfully replicates the paranoia of the town either because it's so clunkily executed Mm -hmm. it's made up like two minutes later by the whole petrol station set piece which is fantastic but uh, (laughs) that bit leading up is just a real slog even if the rest of the
2: film leading up had been really great they still had that cafe scene it would have stuck out like a sore thumb it would have in fact it was the cafe scene where i'd initially turned off the first time around and thought i will come back to this and what a time to turn it off because it's from the (laughs) petrol station scene where like everything kicks off to that second level and from there to the end i think the film just it works gangbusters i mean the scenes before that as well that really work like isolated scenes but it's because it's part of that it's part of a different film essentially like having mentioned psycho i think it's important that we do bring that into the discussion because I do feel like this film structurally is Psycho repeated, but allowed to kind of meander a bit. It's, mm. it's like Psycho, but nowhere near as tight. Mm. And the thing that works about Psycho, I get with the birds that what he's trying to do is the first half of the film is another film entirely, and then the birds invade that film. And that's what makes it terrifying. I get that. And Psycho did the same, but instead of the birds, it had Norman Bates. But the thing that works about Psycho was the Marion section of the story works on its own. That is a film that I would want to see regardless of Norman Bates' introduction and invasion of that film. I want to see that Marion story play out. And that's what makes that film work is that Norman Bates interrupts that story, kills our lead. We suddenly don't know where we are and, and don't know where this is going. With The Birds, because I don't care about that first half of the film, that I there are other films that do the screwball comedy element better, you know. Yeah. You know, Philadelphia Story, Breakfast at Tiffany's, all that kind of thing. It works so much better when it's about The Birds. I, I even feel like on a repeat viewing, it's just like biding your time to get to The Birds. And it kind of, because that beginning is weak and it isn't a film that I want to see on its own, it undercuts really what it does so well in the second half for me
0: and i think you even get that from hitchcock himself it was almost like uh, don't worry the coming sort of thing yeah but it's <laughs> yeah. like it's not really good enough i think what they sh- they really should have i think what they should have done is is thrown out the meat cute plot and and started that again if they were going to yeah. structure it like that because yeah it just doesn't work really well it doesn't work with those cast members anyway and that dialogue mm-hmm and yeah cuz that like the, that's the thing about psycho is that it holds up so well like even nowadays to any sort of first time viewer it's going to work because yeah. the A plot works so well and then when it's hijacked by the B plot it's just it's yeah. still very surprising I watched it not that long ago with Jess and she'd never seen it and it took her by surprise I mean she knew that the shower mm-hmm. scene was was coming cuz obviously everyone does these days yeah. I mean I can't imagine what it would have been like watching it for, for the first time cold <laughs> that would have been incredible because you, you're you're so wrapped up in that in that initial plot mm-hmm. and following her, it works ridiculously well. And if it wasn't for that stupid scene at the end, it would be a completely perfect film. Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect film with a dodgy scene. That's all it is, really. It is,
2: yeah. And I, I also think as well, we do get a scene in The Birds with Melanie Daniels stuck inside the phone box, which is his retake of the shower scene as well. Like the way that that's cut and the way... yeah I, I love the editing. That whole petrol station scene, the way that that plays out, the way that it's edited. And again, no music, but you still feel like there's a sense of rhythm to everything that's happening because you've got that kind of like musical background in the uh, sound design. Oh, it just works for me. That whole sequence is pure terror as well like the yeah. build up the payoff it all works
0: i mean the visual effects in that are, are brilliant as well the fact that the the phone box is in a studio and it's all yeah either process or like map there's a lot of matte paintings in that as well mechanical birds real birds yeah i know that when that bird crashes through the glass that glass shatters through and actually ended up like loads of bits ended up in her face and um, they spent the rest of the afternoon picking out bits of glass from her face yeah, she went through the ringer on it. Like that whole end scene is oh, all, is all word. real birds. Yeah. It was five days apparently that they shot that sequence in.
2: Yeah, watching that scene, it made me feel a little bit breathless as well. Like it, it kind of made me feel a little bit sweaty, palmed, and claustrophobic. And it's one of those scenes where I'm, I'm like, it works probably because, and it's horrible to say that you know that there's a real person being tortured during the scene, but that's also what it make, makes it a despicable scene. <laughs> Like, yeah this sh- shouldn't have to do this for a film yeah but it does have this kind of like sweaty palmed nervousness to it anx- anxiety to it that 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 scene works
0: brilliantly yeah it's kind of part of that um auto director control that's yeah fast becoming out of fashion <laughs> Oh, days. definitely. Like, definitely. You know, it's right up there with the uh, the Quentin Tarantino strangling scene. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the fact that she, Tippi Hedron was so exhausted the week after because they did it basically a Monday to Friday jobby mm-hmm. that even like the following Monday, she was called to the set and just could not get up. So the whole yeah. sequence where she's carried down the stairs and laid down, that's all a body double. Oh, really? And they just put inserts of close-ups afterwards because like
2: she wasn't functioning at all. I think they. Sh-
0: it seemed like they shot quite a lot of the film in order.
2: And uh, speaking about that ending as well. Yeah. One of the things that I actually wrote down in my notes because in this film we do get a very young Veronica Cartwright yeah. as well in a very prominent role. But I've actually written in my notes that she started crying in this film and didn't stop for the next forty years of acting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking
0: that as well. Like, yeah, she's she's really good at crying. No wonder she got yes. typecast. <laughs>
2: she nails it she really does yeah but also about that ending about where the film builds to because it essentially leaves us off with the final act as being this siege and it feels like a zombie movie like a proto-zombie film and when i was watching it i was like well you wouldn't have night of the living dead which actually came a few years later without the birds actually Mm. and in fact there's one prominent shot that's paid homage to by sean of the dead when rod taylor his hand has been bitten by the bird so he goes into the back room to bandage himself and there's a there's a shot of him walking into a room to the left of frame whereas we can see the back door where all the beaks are poking through yeah and he doesn't realize it and that is paid off in sean of the dead where um in the uh, winchester with the winchester with the light on in the back room <laughs> and I thought even the framing of it is perfect and i've never noticed that before it's yeah. fantastic yeah, I like that about Sean of the Dead. Is that uh, that's just Edgar Wright anyway? He knows how to it do. Is, yeah. he
0: knows how to do movie tributes without you knowing. I I liked the. I mean, I didn't like it because, uh, yeah, knowing how they did it was is pretty bad to be honest. But like the whole bird attack on Tippy Hedren at the end is yeah. effective, but at the same time it's quite dumb because I'm just like, why would you open that door? Yeah. It did feel like, again, very slasher. But I felt that the the siege on the house was much more effective in a way because it relied more on sound effects rather than actually seeing anything.
2: It is. And the best scene with the siege is the one in which the birds just begin to make their noise. Yeah. And everybody kind of like retreats to different parts of the house to find refuge. And it's just a noise. We don't even see them. We don't even... This is before the attack. It's almost like a call to arms for the birds. And it's... That was like... I got goosebumps watching that. I was... I I, I remember texting you the other night and saying, there's just no tension to this film. (laughs) And after that, I was like, oh my God, my heart. And apparently they did that using a drum
0: as well. So... Uh, obviously, there's no sound on the set yeah. for you know bird sounds. Anyway, of course, yeah. What they did, like they just let the scene play out. But what they have, they'd have this drummer behind the camera mm-hmm. who would obviously start playing his drum really quiet. And then as time got on, he'd start hitting it harder and harder oh, and harder. Nice. So it yeah. got to like deafening. And that's how they got the sort of the ramping it up like for the actors. That's good. I like that. Like a really low tech way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The last shot in the film is uh, made up of 32 separate pieces of film. Oh, really? Yeah, they were limited to how many seagulls
2: they could use. The seagulls are very well-behaved. I watched that and I thought, those seagulls, he's like kicking them out of the way as he's walking by, just slowly nudging them. It's like very well-behaved and well-trained seagulls.
0: But yeah, they had the uh, was it Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals... On set at all times. I'm
2: glad to hear that because I did write at times it feels like Alfred Hitchcock is just pelting people with birds. There was a lot of trained birds and and
0: like different bird wranglers. I think the bird wrangler was called like Ray Buick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially like the crows who were apparently there was a lot of different trained crows that could do different things. Like they were so well trained that they couldn't be released to the wild because they were like trained to like swoop down you and things like that. And some of the crows were quite friendly, but others were not. Yeah.
2: That final scene is great, but I kind of ruined it for myself. One of the thoughts that popped into my head, because even when I was watching at that point, I was like, I do feel like the birds should mean something. Like it, it would be better if it like played more into what the the a plot, the beginning was. Like if they just even vaguely represented something that we we could tie it to that beginning, because at least with Psycho, you can say, well Norman Bates, you know, he's a very gross and perverse punishment to Marion for her committing this act it's you know it's not justice or anything like that that you would call that but you say the slasher film rules she gets killed because she does something wrong and in this film it's like i don't feel like the birds represent anything in the lives of these characters other than birds You know, Mm. attacking birds. And uh, so I was like, it would be good if we just had just the slightest inkling as to why. And I had this thought of, as the cars leaving town, they pass a sign that says, Welcome to Bodega Bay, home of the world's largest seed bell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like that's the punchline that's the punchline for the whole thing suddenly you understand why
0: i mean there's i think there's a couple of things that i kind of picked up on that i'm not sure they're intentional just something that i've Red, because I know in the in the documentary they, they talk about the um, the phone booth scene and it being a yeah. parallel to the start of the film when when Mitch puts the bird back in the cage in the in the bird shop and like put you back in your gilded cage, and the phone booth is supposed to represent her being in a cage. Okay. And also like that whole kind of sort of like witch hunt thing that goes on in the cafe later on, which is actually I'd say is much yeah. more effective than the cafe scene before. Yeah. You know when they were
2: huddled in that back corridor. Yeah, and that woman comes to forward and blames her and yeah, said that she, yeah. you you brought this to us that's the point where i thought we were going to start getting the thematic understanding as to what the birds represent. Like, Yeah. I, I even wrote at some point, is it the birds, do they represent grief and loss? Because you have Tippy Hedron's character, Melanie's lost her mother, and then you have uh, Mrs. Brenner's lost her husband, and she talks about this feeling of grief, you know, and how it finds you and leaves you exhausted and it can attack you at any time, and this kind of thing. I was like, maybe the birds represent that, but it never really comes to pay off in any way.
0: I also got a, a, almost like a... Something that would have impressed it and the time, like a small town paranoia. Almost yeah. like, a, like a communist thing, like alternate ideology, like the fact that she's a, um, this is a small conservative town and that she's from the city and it's like a...
2: She represents progress and like liberal mindedness. You know, the fact that she's reckless
0: and there's the whole subplot of her being naked in Rome and things like that. And she's like bringing this plague upon them and it's like... Yeah. I think it would have worked better if they'd had that character of Annie be the lead and that she was from the city and she set herself up as a school teacher to be near this guy. I think it would have been a much more streamlined plot if uh,
2: that had been the case. Especially because by like the hour mark, they treat. Melanie Daniels and Mitch they treat them as a married couple anyway for all yeah. intents and purposes they are just a married couple the way that they interact with each other the way that they are around each other they don't act like people that have just met and there's this kind of like sexual tension between them they act like people that have been around each other for a very long time and I think that is clearly because at one point it was the Rita Hayworth cut. Ca- annie hayworth rita hayworth jesus <laughs> uh, the annie hayworth character did fit that mold at one point i think
0: yeah concluding i suppose this i think on a technical level uh, for the most part it is a masterwork but i think it is let down quite a bit especially in the first half of the film by its scenario yeah which i don't think hitchcock ever really solves no he doesn't seem to be able to get around the the flaws in the in the narrative And the the shortcomings of the characters. No,
2: it doesn't seem to be where his interests lie either as a filmmaker. Like, we feel like he's just biding time to get to the birds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with you as well that I do think that on a technical level, this film is a masterwork and I do feel like the second half of the film is a five out of five film in and of itself, but the first half really just holds it back for me, and I was quite shocked and surprised by how little that first half actually worked for me. And I probably have come across as really quite negative about this film because of that first half, but I really do not want to underplay just how well it does work when this film actually does find its footing because there is this kind of like oppressive apocalypticness to it that kind of you take away is really tense and in many ways I do feel like it's set in stone much like Psycho set up the slasher genre you know so many decades before that actually began and I do feel like in The Birds, we have the beginning of the zombie genre as well. Like, yeah. in many ways, because that central siege is in its finale. That is very much the beginning of what the zombie genre took and kind of ran with.
0: And I think also it does set up elements of the um, disaster movie that would be very popular in the early to mid 70s. Yeah. As well, there are elements of that. I mean, yeah, there's, there's little bits of everything in there. Uh, i think people have taken from and i mean as a positive i suppose it is better to have a a weak first half and a strong second half than the other way around
1: definitely yeah because at least it goes
0: somewhere rather than starts off well and then just meanders around it is basic meanders around then gets more focused and um but uh yeah there's no excusing that unfocused first half no. Because it is um, painfully obvious, that it doesn't
2: work. In many ways, though, just as a segue into another film, in many yeah. ways, though, one thing that you can actually say about Birdemic is it is actually quite consistent in terms of its quality <laughs> throughout. Yeah.
0: You, you can't argue with that. It's incredibly consistent. Yeah. It's consistently shit, but yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a good kind of consistent. Yeah. But But, um, one thing that I do actually want to say about Birdemic before we really get into the film, I want to start on a positive note. And I want to start on a positive note in relation to the birds. Because one thing, one single thing that Birdemic does, I won't say better. I, I refuse to use the word better. But one thing that it does that I think the birds is lacking is that at least its central premise and its characters tie into the story of the birds that's it that's it like the whole eco thriller thing like the main character is an eco-minded individual in the most obvious way possible and the birds are an eco threat that is the end of my positive note (laughs) okay so birdemic yeah where do we begin we've already mentioned this isn't the first time that we've seen birdemic how did you find it andy watching it immediately following the birds i actually watched it before the birds um oh my i wish i wish i had gone around (laughs) that way i might have looked more fondly on the first half of the birds if i had watched birdemic first
0: yeah i hadn't seen it for quite a long time um since that initial uh doing the rounds when it kind of became that huge viral thing back in the uh the early 2010s all those years ago And I'd seen little bits of it I think since but I think it's one of those things that maybe works better as a like a, a communal watch but watching it on your own it's uh it's it's fun but maybe not as fun as it should be.
2: It becomes a slog after a few minutes. But I, I, to be honest I still found myself laughing like because I like the first the opening scene as well with the almost like real time drive because I feel like this scene the is the chock opening full. opening titles. <laughs> yeah, that is just a man driving with a camera that's off-kilt the whole time. He can't keep that fucking camera still. No. It's like he's driving
0: and holding the camera at the same time.
2: And you have this kind of lazy musical loop, and it's this kind of meandering musical motif that plays over and over again, and every time you think it's over... He stops it for a... Like, the the comic timing (laughs) is perfect. Because every time you think, oh, it's done now, and he leaves it just enough time for you to think it's over, and then it starts up again. Yeah. And it almost becomes... Like I say, it has that perfect comedy timing of, at first it's funny, then it's annoying, and then it becomes funny again. Yeah. And that's where it ends. And it's like, that kind of sums up the film for me, is that, it's all unintentional. It's it's still hilarious, but it's all unintentional. But it is a film that is best viewed as well with a group of people, or like, a, say, a yeah. communal watch. Because watching it on your own, it does get quite tiresome. <laughs> it does become something of a hard slog to watch despite yeah. the laughs.
0: Th- there's certain moments that are always going to be incredibly funny, whatever, but then there's those in-between yeah. parts that are a little bit tough to get through on your own. They're the kind of moments there you'd be like, having a little natter with your mates whilst having a beer. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, yeah, when you're just watching it in the cold light of day on your own, it's like, oh, I've got to get through this bit before I can <laughs> get to the next great bit. But yeah, that, that opening title just it epitomises the whole film. Yeah. The poor sense of timing, the recycling of things, not knowing <laughs> what makes a good sequence and what should be in a film. The complete incompetence.
2: And the fact that it comes up as supporting casts. Yeah. As if there's, like I said, it's the first film to be made <laughs> with, with multiple <laughs> supporting casts. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I think that, like, for example, that music clip is about 40 odd seconds long and he uses it about five or six times in that <laughs> opening. and It just comes in and out.
2: It reminded me of, like, when you leave a DVD menu on by accident.
0: And yeah, just the blind incompetence of the whole yeah. piece is um just something to behold. I mean, I I watched that um that Vice YouTube documentary just before yeah. on like the true story bird demic with the um Evan Husney and Bobby Hacker and their whole involvement with with him and getting that film brought up by um Severin Films and the whole two year trip they had with him and the aftermath mm-hmm. and everything. And there's a bit in that where he sh- he's showing them how he created the magic on his on his (laughs) Dell computer and it's like the whole drag and drop clip art thing because he was showing them how he inserted his digital characters yeah and it was literally just a case of I dragged and dropped them onto the timeline and look I can move them about look how amazing this is and I kind of feel like the whole film was like that where he's just dragged and dropped things without thinking about it properly and thinking it's
2: really novel I remember seeing the trailer. I can't remember. I think it must have been at university, but I remember seeing the trailer for the film. Somebody in one of my classes had showed me. Even at that time, I thought it looks great. Like it looks like great, like the type of film that I want to see, like The Room, because The Room was a big thing at the same time. I think that was around about 2009, 2010. Yeah. So I, I find these two films quite synonymous. Like they, they make a good double bill as well if you want to really get into the bad films of that era. But I thought at first, when I'd first seen it, I was like, this must have been made to be intentionally bad, for the CGI to be that bad. There's no way anybody can be that deluded to think that this works. And when you watch that Vice documentary as well, I mean, once you see the actual film, you know that there's certain delusions at play here. Yeah, but... When you watch that Vice documentary as well, and you see him talk about it, and you see him quite like, enthusiastic about it as well, like the way that he did this, the way that, as you mentioned, he worked his magic, you realise that, wow, yeah, he really does believe in this, and, and it's that belief that sells the whole film. It's It's that sense of that earnestness. I think the best bad films have to be made this way they have to be made with no intention to make a bad film. Mm. That's why, no matter how many Sharknadoes come out, no matter yeah. how many giant snake or spider movies comes out, I- I'm not going to really see them. They're not the type of bad film that I'm looking for. I'm looking yeah. for a bad film that feels like there's a vision behind it, a true vision. And Birdemic is a film with a vision. Whether it's good or bad, it's a film <laughs> with a vision.
0: Yeah, it's, it's that sincerity that comes through and, and has lasted until this day, like the fact that he's still in the belief that he made in his mind a uh, a good low budget film and that yeah. he genuinely thought that he was getting offers from Hollywood yeah we've all been there and and the whole debacle with Paramount that happened with him announcing that Paramount were going to take him up to make Birdemic 2 and for 20 million dollars and his actual general belief in it and and genuine upset when it all didn't come to pass for very obvious reasons. Yeah. There's even a scene in that Vice documentary when he has a meeting with the uh the agent who tells him to do something else other than the birdemic and he, he's just yeah. like and afterwards he's just like a sulky child. Yes. It's kind of bizarre how somebody can be that deluded. And also, I don't know whether there is something going on underneath. I, I really don't know. The, the, those those kind of characters are always kind of going to raise a lot of questions, anyway. But
2: it's like the Neil Breen thing. I mean, and I'm, I'm only going to touch upon Neil Breen because that is somebody that I would like to oh, really dedicate an entire <laughs> episode to. Yeah. But it's like the Neil Breen thing, where part of it that makes them is that sense of self-belief that sense of delusion and as you mentioned he is a silky child at the end of it but at the same time i don't want to see the version of james and gwen that the talent agent is saying you know you need to go into like making short films i think yeah i think anybody really if they go to the right school they surround themselves with the right people they're willing to take on the right information they can make something approaching a competent like short film or something like that as long as they're open to that but it's His pure dedication to that insane vision that he has (laughs) that I think makes him unique. And it's it's the same with all these bad films. I don't want to see the competent but mediocre version of these these filmmakers. I want to continue to see the earnestly and sincerely bad films that they're going to make. Yeah, yeah. So I'm almost glad that he walked away from that meeting in a bit of a sulk, because have you seen Birdemic 2, by the way? I've only seen bits
0: of it. You can tell automatically that it's been,
2: the sincerity has been watered down
0: immediately. It's not what Birdemic was.
2: No, no, I, I couldn't get through it. I found it to be unwatchable just simply because it was lacking that. It felt like it was more like a Sharknado film. Yeah. And he talks in that Vice documentary about him losing control over a film. Yeah. And you can tell it's that, he said, I had to make some compromises. That isn't a film that I had control over you can really see that somebody kind of trampled his vision and made a purposely bad film. Yeah, it's too self-aware. Exactly, yeah. At least Birdemic has a great song. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as well, like,
0: with the Neil, I think the Neil Brains and the and James Gwen. I feel that, in a way, they have um, more integrity than uh, the Tommy Wiseau's now because I feel like Tommy Wiseau has kind of cottoned on that people are laughing at him, but you only have to look at that... Um, that Neighbours sitcom that he made, which is entirely self-aware and awful, intentionally so, that it becomes unwatchable, very much like Birdemic too. And he's pretty much just cashing in now on on that whole aspect. So it's kind of spoiled Tommy Wiseau a little bit because it, it, it he's, definitely, he's has. definitely become far too self-aware. Uh, yeah. I mean, I still don't think he quite understands what it is that people like about him, but he's definitely aware of it.
2: I know it's like, from their point of view, they probably see the laughing at them and the work and the art as being obviously a negative, but it being quite mean. But I do feel like, for Tommy Wiseau, there is a desire for him to be in on the joke. Like, he wants to be on the other side of the joke with the rest of the audience. Yeah, But to put himself in that position is to really diminish what we want from a Tommy Wiseau film.
0: Yeah, there's things in this film but I I'm not even sure how technically he even achieved it because
2: (laughs) the magic of cinema the magic of the badness
0: it's like is unprecedented i mean like for example like the 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 biggie for me uh coming from an audio background i don't understand how i get that there's audio cutoffs in between the cuts but i don't understand the audio cutoffs whilst a clip is showing
2: within the scene yeah
0: has he got a faulty camera or something? Did he shoot the whole film with, with a busted audio on his camera? Mm-hmm. Like, because I don't understand how the audio drops in and out even when a scene is playing without any cuts. Yeah, because yeah, I get that there's you can have clumsy edits in the audio when that when a, when there's yeah. a shot from a shot, but when in when a, a shot's just playing out unadulterated, how the audio can just cut out, it's just, um, yeah.
2: Well, it it made me think, like, one of the first things, because I did a film theory course, but I also did a film practical filmmaking course as well. And one of the first things that they teach you, even though I don't come from a sound background, when it comes to recording sound, they're like, well, make sure that you do get an ambient track of the environment so that you can <laughs> un- put it throughout the entire scene. And yeah. then when you have to cut between dialogue pieces, even if you're using the onset dialogue, it's still going to match the ambient sound, yeah. of, like the ambient background sound from the track that you've recorded. And it's like, it's just something as simple as that, that this film is utterly and completely lacking. Like, that is one of the first lessons that they teach you with sound, with recording sound on set. Always make sure you get the ambient. I mean, the hallmark
0: of an amateur film is usually in the sound department anyway.
2: Yeah. I mean, even if it
0: looks half decent, if the sound is rubbish, you can always tell that it's an amateur Mm -hmm. production.
2: That would be my first film as well. The sound is fucking shocking. I mean, this is almost like
0: beyond that yeah you do get those amateur films that are made with with the in-camera audio and and stuff like that or even like iPhone audio and things like that <laughs> yeah. but this is like I don't know what camera he used it obviously wasn't a very good
2: one anyway <laughs> I think it's one of those like spy cameras that you get in a pen or a button oh, or something like that it's got kind of, a six megapixel I'd love him to make
0: a film with like an Ari Alexa or something and just completely fuck it up <laughs> could you
2: imagine yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Birdemic, director of photography, Roger Deacons. That's his goal for Birdemic 3 Sea Eagle.
1: Sea <laughs> C-
0: <C>
2: Eagle. <laughs> that's the subtitle. Sea Eagle. Yeah. I love how he talks about it. He's completely straight, like that's the title of the film. See, it was when he mentioned that title and it's the straight faceness of it. And it's like, because out of anybody else's mouth, I'm saying the name of my third film is Birdemic 3 Sea Eagle. <laughs> It's, it's instantly like, oh, you know what you're doing. Yeah. You know you know exactly what you're doing. You know how bad this sounds. But when he says it, it's like, it's so sincere. That makes me want to see Sea Eagle. yeah I mean, it works in two ways as well, because Sea Eagle and Seagull. <laughs> <laughs> and I think also the fact that he yeah, he's so true
0: to his vision that even when they were making the film, the two leads, um, Alan Bach and Whitney Moore were trying to make him let them do their own dialogue. But he was yeah. very much adamant that they were gonna say every line of his script, even though it was written in broken English. So they had to say it like that.
2: That Vice documentary when they mentioned that broken English segment that you know they tried, that was like solving a riddle for me. Because the moment that they said that the film was every single character speaking in the same broken English as the director. It suddenly makes sense in yeah. terms of like the dialogue that and, and the way that it's uh, the way that it's written as well.
0: And yeah, it seemed like they were kind of like duped into it. I don't know why they didn't just walk off. At it, actually, I mean, I think it was just kind of them being nice, and I think also doing it in the knowledge that they th- they thought that no one's going to see this yeah i think that it brings up another thing i want to talk about in a minute anyway the fact that yeah they they tried to get him to like change the dialogue or or them adapt it to how people would actually talk but he wouldn't let them do that and the fact that like the first 3 weeks they had a crew and then they slowly mm-hmm. disappeared to the point where it was just him, I think. Yeah. And little things like the fact they had to kill the Becky character off because she basically
2: wanted to go because she was going to drama school. So they kill her off in like the most unflattering way possible. She's going for a shit. Yeah. Like, she literally walks into the middle of a field with some toilet roll in her hand, squats down, and then a bird... Cuts her throat, I think. Isn't it even in the dialogue that they say she's going for a shit? Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Like
2: I think, think a a boyfriend
0: Dylan says. (laughs) Yeah, I imagine maybe he did that on purpose. (laughs) It's like you've left my film early. I'm going to (laughs) make you die in a really stupid way. But yeah, it's the fact. I think also the thing as well, like the thing that Whitney Moore said that when they were wrapping up the shoot, you know, after probably many many weeks of long weekends, she was excited to never see him again.
2: There's a great episode of How Did This Get Made with we- Weird Al Yankovic as a guest yeah. as well. And I don't really want to get into another episode of a different show, but they have her on the podcast as well. They introduce her halfway through. It's a live audience one. And uh, one of the things that she does mention during that episode is that, her audition, like, when she got the job, her audition was in a school parking lot, just, like, a car park. Yeah. And they made her audition for the film The... If you said to me that this was a film in which all of the characters were cast in a school's parking lot, like, like yeah, this, this is that film, definitely. And, the,
0: the, yeah, there does seem to be a, a certain degree of, like, sincerity as to their involvement, because I think they were just in the impression... Yeah, you know, I'd like to do some acting in films. This is a film. Okay, it's not great, but I may as well finish it anyway, and no one's going to see it. And it mm-hmm. might turn out okay. I could put a little bit of on my reel. You know, that seemed to yeah. be the general attitude with yeah. these guys, like because they were obviously thought that the effects were going to be better than they were, and and obviously, yeah. he. I imagine they may not have even seen any footage of the film mm-hmm. and obviously like the way it's edited and put together is is another part of the badness other than the like the dialogue and the performances i've been involved in film i mean not to this level of badness but i've been involved in films where i just thought this is not what i was sold at all like when i actually see yeah. the finished film i did a whole film um a couple of years ago where i thought the guy was making barry linden and it just ended up being nothing like
2: Barry Lyndon. Yeah, uh, it was like I, I have directed films. As bad <laughs> as this, I when I was at college, um, when I was at university, sorry, on my second project, I, I made a first project that really did quite well, and then my second project, the goal was that I I had no control over the story or the dialogue, the characters, that type of thing, the thematics or anything, I was just simply allowed to direct it. Mm. That was the exercise, really, for myself. And when we turned up on the first day of shooting, I, a script was written that I didn't get. And on the first day of shooting, I still remember this as clear as day, the cameraman turned around to me and said, how do I turn it on? <laughs> and that, <laughs> that was it for me. In my yeah, mind, yeah. a little tiny explosion happened. And I think I just kind of retreated to some recess. I was like, nope, nobody's ever, and nobody has ever seen this. It's not available anywhere. Oh, have I seen <laughs> it, was, it? Nope. Oh, right, no, again. no, no. I've I didn't seen a show few. Even my family, <laughs> for, like the closest people in my life, hasn't seen it. In my brain, yeah. it just went well. Like a, a switch went off, and it just Mwah, went.
1: Mwah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think that also, as well,
0: brings me on to this something I was thinking about whilst watching the film. Because it has this like reputation, and I think it's more born out of the personality of the director more than the film itself. Because I am sure, I know that there are films that are worse than this, there's got yeah. to be films that are worse than this, but I think it's more in the way that it was the general tenacity of the director, his firm belief. Of yeah, yeah. Getting a a deal with this film, like the fact that you know he went round Sundance in a van which was covered in fake blood and birds and handing out flyers, and that's how and the a sign
2: that said Birdemic that was spelled incorrectly. Spelt
0: um, <laughs> and that's how he got the you know the attention of those two guys who eventually got him the deal with the Severin Films, which is what caused the whole thing to be a phenomenon. Anyway, mm-hmm. that you know I th- I'm sure there's many bad films that don't have that kind of exposure person at the helm who has that oh, yeah. tenacity and belief so i'm almost like questioning this is a very famous bad movie but is it the worst movie because it's like it's kind of created its own mythology and i'm like yeah is it almost giving it a little bit too much credit no i get you yeah there's bound to be other wonders that are yeah. don't have this kind of platform because of uh you know circumstance and, and the person. of course of people i, I do
2: think that the way that this film came to be as well is like lightning in a bottle yeah because a film this bad normally it just becomes a community film and you can see it as a community film as well it's been made with a a small town with their help kind of thing you've got People from the local drama groups helping out as well. And because of the amount that it was made for, like under 10 grand, you know that it's just dealing with a lot of favours there as well. He's talking his way into places and and into locations as well to use. Sometimes not always to get the footage he wants because there are a couple of green screen uh, scenes as well. Yeah. In any other world, really, any other scenario, this would just be a film for that community. Yeah. And it would become the... The thing that's talked about for a time and then it disappears and it's just something held in these people's lives for forever. Yeah. And it is lightning in a bottle that Birdemic has ever been allowed to become the phenomenon that it was and for us to be able to see it and talk about it today, really. Yeah. Like, such a series of circumstances, series of events must have happened <laughs> for us to it, it to become this midnight movie, really.
0: And, and also, that's like, in terms of like, categorising films because I do have a hard time categorising films like this because I, I can't really put Birdemic in the same category as The Room because for all its awfulness The Room still feels yeah. like a legitimate film if you know what I mean it's you know it's shot I, on no, film it's made yeah. with the capital you know it's a six million dollar movie there are p- sets pur- purportedly anyway um, <laughs> you know, yeah and it's made more like a legitimate film whereas this is more of someone's like home movie project really that's it yeah but in their minds they're making a Hollywood movie but a low budget yeah. one so it's a completely yeah. different mindset and I have a hard time comparing the two because even though they keep getting lumped in the same category I can't like is it even a movie like where Where does that start and end? It's like when you start (laughs) talking about pieces of art, it's like it gets very, it gets, but it gets muddled, if you know what I mean. Like, in terms of, I have to put these into different, like, tiers, I suppose. It's very difficult. I don't know why I'm
2: so bothered about categorizing bad (laughs) movies, but you know what I mean? There are
0: different levels to them.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's like, I think in terms of, like, the bad movie filmmaking hierarchy, you have at the top, like, the room, which is. I wouldn't say competently made or anything like that, but its in the high end. I know what you're saying. (laughs) It's—it is like the high end scale. You can see that there's some, some at least, even minor production value in that film as well. There are sets built. There um, are—I almost said real actors then. (laughs) <laughs> but um, there are sets built there are people there's location shooting the studio shooting there's real sound guys and cameras and film used pandemic i would say is at the bottom of that level where yeah it's just a home video and somewhere in between you have neil breen's entire catalog <laughs> i mean even neil breen you have like you know like double
0: down is almost like completely different to his other films because it's double Down's the first one isn't it because that that's shot on film. And that's funny.
2: Where you see his ballsack. Yeah. It? And, and but like,
0: for example, that one's shot on film, as opposed to the other one's being shot on video. And there's like a uh, almost yeah. like I'm not going to say legitimacy to the first one because it's shot on <laughs> film, but it has a different, more sort of slightly more professional feel than the other than the others that followed. Yeah. So yeah, there are different levels to this kind of thing, and I think as technology's moved on, maybe it's become a little bit fuzzier. Mm-hmm. And also, like I think even like uh, viewing old bad movies, like where they had to use film. Yeah. Or it was either really bad video type there's different different levels even then so yeah it's difficult to um, categorise and, and rank
2: these no kind of definitely films. okay Andy so having now watched Birdemic and The Birds which would you say is the better of the two oh it's a tough choice yeah because I
0: think they legitimately suffer from the same issues so <laughs> um. it's a
2: tough one and which it's relationship one. is
0: the most convincing I don't know <laughs> And which one structurally
2: is more sound? Like I say, I do think Birdemic is far more consistent. Yeah, it is definitely <laughs> competent. Isn't a word I would use. I think yeah, the
0: one way of describing it. I mean, the Birds is a a, flaw, a heavily flawed masterwork, and um, Birdemic is a perfect shit show. You know, one one is a perfect film, and the other one is heavily flawed, but in completely
2: different categories. Uh, Yeah, I I think you can describe them both as masterworks, but for completely different reasons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I think it's time to move over to some stats and facts information. I mean, even with Birdemic, we didn't even get to the actual CGI. They have birds that dive bomb (laughs) that sound like World War II planes. They explode on impact. I think that's one of the greatest jump cuts in history, <laughs> is that whole
0: sequence it where it's like, there's about 10 to 15 shots of just stillness. Yeah. And then it goes <laughs> absolutely batshit crazy. Yeah. I think the other thing I, I genuinely love about Birdemic in the, in the second half is the fact that they have this sort of apocalypse, this apocalyptic like situation, and yet... They didn't even bother to film on roads where it was quiet. They just filmed on main roads where there's just traffic
2: yeah. hoarding. In people there. in the background at just, all times and just stuff like going that. Going
0: about their business. It's very much yeah. like the Star Wars prequels. Um yeah. when they have the Clone <laughs> Wars. And then when yeah. you get back to Coruscant, there's just people going about their daily like, business. Me. But there's things in that that are just this wonderful things like that that I uh, will always adore. <laughs> like just the general yeah. like incompetence of things like that.
2: I mean, that's it. I didn't really want to get into a conversation of just like the individual scenes because I could go through the entire film because there is so much to choose. It's like a an embarrassment of riches yeah. in terms of like bad movie scenes. And there's so many different parts and aspects of it I can nitpick. But I stopped writing notes halfway through as well and just... Just let it wash over me.
0: Although there is one thing that's, that I wished was in the film that is not in the film, and I think this is almost like a parallel to the room. In that scene with the mum, I would have loved yeah. for her to have said, yes, I definitely have diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> I got the results back from the yeah. insulin test.
2: <laughs> oh, and then,
0: you go, girl. Yeah. Oh, I love that uh, that's one of my favourite... Oh, there's so many great bits. But again, with with this, and because we've done this so late, I mean, there's many, many other things that you can, you know, if you want to see somebody dissect the movie, there's many other ones. So we're not the guys Definitely. to do that. But I think juxtaposing this with the birds was our angle
2: anyway. So It, it certainly was. And it was a good angle as well. Yeah. So now talking about the stats and facts as well in regards to these two films, there isn't really much for us to get into, but I'll start with the birds. And say that it had a budget of $3.3 million and it made $11.4 million overall. So it turned a profit, but it was also seen as being something of a flop at the time. It didn't quite make the uh, the money that a Hitchcock film with his name should pull mm. in.
0: That's a kind of strange one, though, as well, because Hitchcock's career did have its ups and downs anywhere. I mean, yeah. for every Psycho and North by Northwest, you had a Vertigo, which was mm-hmm. a huge yeah. failure at the time and my favorite and and this is nowhere near like along those i mean that was a a huge flop yeah and then you've got things like under capricorn earlier on which were huge flops as well so Mm -hmm. i think this was definitely the start of the downward trajectory though because i think after this point he didn't really have uh i think with the exception of frenzy any other more successes i know marnie was a a big failure
2: and all the films frenzy took him like leaving the country to make frenzy yeah like he could not make it with the same people he couldn't make it with the same cast as he used to and he couldn't even make it in the same country yeah i mean frenzy i could dedicate a whole episode to as well because it's um, a much more viscerally grosser film than we're used to from hitchcock and it's actually really quite sleazy and horrible and i like that about the film but yeah you can tell it's completely different and, and in a way i think that benefits hitchcock because yeah, he's yeah. not falling to a rut with all the same people the same studio and that type of thing like it's it's forcing him to do things a little bit differently
0: yeah i mean yeah the frenzy is like hitchcock trying to modernize yeah for the 70s but um i think the birds is yeah it's only genuinely seen as a failure as a follow-up to psycho Absolutely. And that was the trap that he was falling into anyway at that point, where he was just sort of almost competing with
2: himself. Uh, But I will say that the critics' consensus, although I read on Wikipedia that it was mixed at the time, overall now it has a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with a really high average rating of 8.2. And the consensus is that proving once again that build-up is key to suspense – Alfred Hitchcock successfully turned birds into some of the most terrifying villains in horror history. Now I certainly agree with the latter half of that consensus, but I don't think the build-up worked for me. I think the individual Mm. scenes in the latter half of the film really work. But even, even though I will say with all of the criticisms that I've had, I completely understand why it's regarded as, as a masterwork, especially how shocking it must have been to see, seen it back then as well. And for my critics review, I've, once more, gone to Empire Magazine and this is Angie Arigo, and her review is A mysterious army of enemies with no suggested motive and what's worse, they are friendly garden crows. It clamps itself to your recollection and doesn't let go and she gave it 5 out of 5 and that was one of the Empire essays as well. I would recommend reading that, it's a good go as well. And the audience score for The Birds is 83% so slightly below with an average rating of 3.96 out of 5. And the IMDb score as well, just to bolster that, is 7.7 out of 10. So really, it's high ratings all round for that particular film as well.
0: I'd say that IMDb is actually probably close to what I
2: would put it as. Same, I was going to say, but for me, I would say it's a 7 out of 10 film. Anyway, moving on to Birdenic... (laughs) there's not really much to go on with this film as well because of the like low budget nature of it as well although it has exposure as a midnight movie it's not really exactly the film that's going to open to four thousand screens or something like that so its budget was ten thousand dollars or below Mm. and uh, the box office overall we do not have a figure for but i imagine it's been something of a success in terms of home video because well it's got released across many different countries for people much like ourselves that enjoy the communal watching of these type of films. And um, on Rotten Tomatoes, moving over to the critics' response, it has the high score, very high score, of 18%. And that is a 2.55 average rating out of 10. <laughs> There's no consensus because it's only something like 20 reviews and not even that. But I did pick a critic review from Variety and this is a very positive one and it says howlingly bad films are a dime a dozen but the evident Edward-like sincerity with which di- writer-director James and Gwen lovingly crafted this compendium of cinematic don'ts gives it a goofy almost surrealist charm and I 100% agree. And uh, the audience score is 26% with a 1.83 out of 5 rating. And the IMDb score, uh, because I do think this film is in the bottom 250, is 1.8 out of 10. It's got to be right down there. I think it's in the bottom 5. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, Andy, any final thoughts for these films? You know what? I'm actually quite surprised that it is
0: so low because... A lot of the times these ratings are based on not just the quality of the film, but their entertainment factor. So yeah, uh, it does puzzle me somewhat as to why like certain audience scores are so low as well, actually. I'd, I'd expect the audience score to actually be higher.
2: Yeah, I, I understand that it's not a good film, but it's certainly an enjoyable watch but mm. under the right circumstances. And especially because of the kind of midnight movie following this film had as well. I would say if we were rating by entertainment value alone, then yes, the, the score should be higher. But I can completely understand why it has the rating that it does.
0: <laughs> I can I don't understand why. Yeah, we're legitimately calling it out on the rating. Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
2: Okay, so that has been our The Birds and Birdemic review today. I hope you've very much enjoyed that. Join us next week when we'll be actually doing things even more differently as we won't be discussing one particular film but discussing a whole host of films. It's one of the first of what we would call our topic shows, yeah. our topic-led episodes. And for this topic, we're actually going to be discussing the realm of Disney live-action remakes. So, you're speaking about films like Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Aladdin, but all of the lesser versions of those. Yeah. And we'll actually be joined by a special guest, Aidan Belazur. I'm sure it's going to be a good old time for us to really (laughs) get our teeth and claws into these these films. I know that you've been really enjoying your rewatch of these films. Oh,
0: I've been thoroughly researching by
2: watching the originals (laughs) and then the remakes. It's been... Yeah. <laughs> it should prove to be quite an experience. Yeah. But until then, it's from me. <laughs> That's actually pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Andy. Thank you for listening.